Our New Testament reading this morning is from Paul's letter, the second letter to the Corinthians. It's at chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, page 141 in the New Testament section of your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, He scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please join me in prayer. Great creating spirit, open our ears to hear the wonders of the universe. Open our eyes to see the beauty of the earth. Open our hearts to receive the wisdom of your word through Jesus Christ. Amen. Desperate times call for desperate measures, maybe even a little arm-twisting, some magical thinking, and a few rash promises. At least that seems to be the case for the Apostle Paul in this morning's passage. This passage in 2 Corinthians might be the the church's first ever annual giving campaign letter. (laughs) Paul sounds desperate because he is. The church in Jerusalem is in dire straits, experiencing real poverty and hardship. In the past, the church in Corinth had been generous in contributing to the needs of their fellow churches. Now, for some reason, their zeal is lagging. Paul's worried. Maybe that's why he says, give because giving benefits the giver. But is it true? Are givers enriched? Well, yes and no. In a time of famine, a starving mother who gives her last bite of food to her child does not automatically receive more food. She only dies more quickly. The senior citizen who contributes beyond his means to a disaster fund doesn't receive any increase in his pension. When Paul says the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, he's just a hair short of something that's called the prosperity gospel, that is, promising material rewards for faith. Many would argue, including myself, 
that the prosperity gospel is not the gospel at all. But Paul is so anxious about Jerusalem that he doesn't think it's wrong to prod the self-interest of the Corinthians. He figures it's better that they contribute for the wrong reason than that anyone die of hunger. But here's the thing. It is indeed magical thinking to believe that material rewards always follow generosity. Nevertheless, Paul is on solid ground in arguing that in giving, we receive, that the one who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. The transition support group here at our church is reading the Book of Joy, a a book-long interview with the Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. On the topic of generosity, Tutu says, I've sometimes joked and said God doesn't know very much about math, because when you give to others, it should be that you are subtracting from yourself. But in this incredible kind of way, you gave, and it then seems like, in fact, you are making space for more to be given to you. And there is a very physical example, says Tutu. The Dead Sea in the Middle East receives fresh water, but it has no outlet, so it doesn't pass the water out. It receives beautiful water from the rivers, and the water goes dank. I mean, it just goes bad, and that's why it is the Dead Sea. It receives and does not give. And we are made such a way, too. I mean, we receive and and we must give. In the end, says Tutu, generosity is the best way of becoming more and more and more joyful. Generosity is the best way to become more joyful. What Paul and many other people understand intuitively, that in giving, we also receive, now has been researched and documented. Researchers have identified generosity as one of the four fundamental brain circuits that map with long-term well-being. Generosity is associated with better health, a stronger immune system, and longer life expectancy. Research shows that people experience greater happiness when they spend money on others than when they spend it on themselves. So it seems that money can buy happiness, after all, if you spend it on other people. James Doty is the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford. Years before he went into altruism research, he made a fortune as a medical, uh, medical technology entrepreneur, and he pledged stock worth $30 million to charity. Then the stock market crashed, and he lost everything, except the stock that he had pledged to the charity. His lawyers told him that he could get out of his commitment to the charity. Everyone would understand because the situation had changed so completely. One of the persistent myths in our society, Doty explained, is that money will make you happy. Growing up poor, I had thought that money would give me everything I did not have. Control, power, love, When I finally had all the money I ever dreamed of, I discovered that it did not make me happy. And when I lost it all, all my false friends disappeared. 
Doty decided to go through with the charitable, charitable contribution. At that moment, he says, I realized that the only way that money can bring happiness is to give it away. Being generous with our time seems to be equally profound for our health. A large study found that volunteering reduces the risk of death by 24%. The reason that generosity has this powerful impact on us is that it goes to the center of our humanity and what makes our lives joyful and meaningful. We are wired for connection. We are wired for interdependence. We cannot survive even on our own, on our own, even if we pretend that we can, and generosity communicates that. Paul, of course, doesn't know about the research. He describes this generosity effect in terms that he and the Corinthians and any person of faith can understand. He says that generosity glorifies God. It is a way to worship God. In fact, it is an encounter with God. Paul doesn't separate love of God and love of neighbor the way that we usually do. We might focus on relieving the suffering of our neighbor or on the good feelings we get from relieving suffering. But to Paul, that is loving God and giving God glory. This approach that when we engage in acts of generosity, there is a two-way encounter with God, even worship of God, was at the core of the ministry that our own Jo Gross describes in her book, The Welcome Table. As many of you know, Jo Gross helped start and run a soup kitchen called The Banquet in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in the 1980s. During the planning stage, Jo went to Milwaukee to take a look at similar programs. She describes her first lesson as an encounter with a volunteer with one arm who bounded about the dining room, greeting the guests and making them all feel welcome. The man was a former street person himself, and he gave Joe and the others their first insight into what was to become one of the basic tenets of their work at the banquet, welcoming the stranger. She writes, those of us who watched the volunteer welcoming strangers at the door, ourselves included, knew that we had been touched by God and we had learned a lesson to take home. Joe says that the banquet was also part of a reaction to a bad experience. At another soup kitchen in another city, Joe saw soup ladled into paper cups and running down the arms of those in the line, and food was thrown onto plates. There was little interaction other than keep the line moving, or remember, this isn't the Hilton Hotel. Joe remembers one person there saying, this soup needs something. It doesn't have soul. So written into the mission statement of the banquet were the words, we believe the poor should never be served poorly. Joe writes, we were to be with one another. Each would see the face of God in the face of the other. Nutritional food for the hungry body would be the obvious nourishment, but there would also be food for the hungry soul and nurturing from the ministry of presence. Joe coached and mentored us here at First Presbyterian Church when we began the rest shelter here nearly 10 years ago now. Anyone who has served at that shelter knows that this is a two-way ministry. 
While it looks on the surface as though the generosity is flowing in one direction, the people serving get back at least as much as they give. And it all gives God glory. It is a worshipful experience. Christians tend to emphasize the sacrifice of doing for others, of decreasing so that others can increase, of humble simplicity. That's all fine, but Paul is on to something real. He isn't just being manipulative in saying that generosity is good for us. It is good for us. It makes us feel good. It gives us joy. That's how we're wired. And I suspect that that was God's intention in wiring us that way. Now you might be thinking, okay, Joanne, if generosity brings joy and is in fact a way to worship God, are you telling me that I'm supposed to show up with the crowds at Walmart at 4 a.m. on Black Friday? (laughs) Not exactly. All the stores are already decorated for Christmas. Santa's going to be showing up at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade as usual this Thursday. So today is a good day to talk about our culture's pressure to overspend and consume at Christmas time. How does that relate to generosity? The research shows and our experience confirms that there is something deeply moving about certain gifts, both giving and receiving. Think about the most memorable Christmas present that you ever received. What was it that touched you? Why do you still remember it? For most of us, the special gift that we remember is not the electronic gadget or the sweater vest. For most of us, it's a different kind of gift, a relational gift. The best gifts are relational. The reason we give gifts at Christmas is because God gave God's self to us at Christmas, and that is our model. God gave us God's presence. That's presence ending with a C-E, not presence ending with a T-S. God's gift to us in Jesus was personal, and it was costly, Not in terms of dollars, but rather in terms of investment, in thoughtfulness, in service. We all have to figure out what that looks like in our own families. At my house, we figured out that season tickets to a fraction of the Oakland A's baseball games means that our family is committed to spending time together, doing something that we enjoy together, 10 or 12 times over the spring and summer. It's a gift that doesn't break, it doesn't get returned, it doesn't get stuck on a shelf, and it doesn't go out of style. The authors of a book called The Advent Conspiracy write, if we can resist the trap of giving easy gifts, and if we can reject the assumption that giving expensive gifts or many gifts is the best way to express love, something else might begin to happen we might experience moments of relational giving that our friends and family care about and remember. Our kids will learn what it means to give gifts that are personal and meaningful. Our neighbors and coworkers and friends will watch us celebrate Christmas differently. 
and they'll, they will hear the good news loud and clear through the seasonal static. It isn't Christmas yet, or even Advent. This Thursday is Thanksgiving. It's interesting that Paul says generosity produces Thanksgiving rather than the other way around. I think it's something of a chicken and egg proposition myself. God gives us all that we have. In gratitude, we generously give back to God and to God's children, which is a way to worship and love God. And that generosity produces more gratitude. Today, in gratitude to God, we dedicate our pledges to the work of this congregation, to the ministry that we do together in God's name, to the worship, the working for justice, the acts of compassion and inclusion, the making space for healing, teaching our children, speaking out for the planet, and offering fellowship. Basically, we give, which glorifies God, so that we can give together which also glorifies God. We sow bountifully with our gifts. We sow bountifully with our gifts to the church so that we can all sow bountifully together. May we sow bountifully. May we reap bountifully. And may our generosity increase our joy. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.